0: Hello, listeners, and welcome back to The New Books in Science and Technology and Society, a podcast for The New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Chad Velasic. Today, we'll be talking to Dan Chard and Sigrid Schmalzer about their book uh, that they edited called Science for the People, documents from America's movement of radical scientists. In a time where the politics of science have only intensified, this is a very appropriate addition to have. This book indeed uh, is indeed an edited volume featuring original documents from the movement of radical scientists and activists um, from 1969 to 1989, uh, and also includes some uh, recently declassified FBI files on the group, uh, which hopefully we'll be talking about. Um, science for the People dealt with a number of issues from, from agriculture, as we'll hear, and, and genetic screenings. Uh, ideology and the sciences more broadly, just to name a a very select few. Um, In addition, the movement dealt with the problems of military and corporate funding of science and other structural aspects of labor in science, such as various biases and restrictions against women and people of color. Uh, Sigurd and the other editors also discuss how this group fits in with the history and work of STS, since not only was there overlap in membership, if you will, Their analytic and critical views of the relationship between science and society is as relevant as ever for the field. Uh, Let us begin by welcoming Sigrid and Dan. Thank you. Thanks, Chad. Great to have you here. Um, So just to get us started, why don't you just say a little bit about yourselves and and about um, how you became interested in, in this issue of science and politics?
1: Thanks. Um, So I went to high school in the 1980s. And by that point, I was already um, identifying very strongly as an environmentalist. I thought I wanted to go into the environmental sciences in college um, so that I could pursue that interest. Um, But I quickly realized that um, my skills and my interests lay more in the area of of ideas about science than in actual lab work. And I found a program, I was sitting at Wesleyan University, I found a program called Science and Society. And that allowed me to think about the um, issues that I was interested in, um, but in social context and political context. And so um, I combined that with a major in East Asian Studies um, and uh, developed this um area of research in the history of science in socialist and post-socialist China. Um, And that's been the main focus of my research um, ever since. Um, And uh, Science for the People, I can you know say a little later maybe about um how I um ended up on this road. Um but uh that actually emerged out of the work I was already doing on China.
2: Yeah and um I don't have much of a background in science. I'm a historian and I'm not a – I don't consider myself a historian of science, although maybe I am now But after editing this book. But I was recruited onto this by Sigrid, and maybe during the interview she'll talk more about how her interest in this specific book came about. Or, But um, I have a background I, – I study post-World War II U.S. social movements and politics, and I have a – like Sigrid, have a background in different forms of – Left-wing or radical social movements, and I was really interested in this this the "Science for the People" movement when Sigrid introduced them to me because I study movements of this period, and I'd never heard of this group before. And they've been, um, once I started looking at the archives and talking to some of the members when we had when um, we came to there was a conference that Sigrid helped organize and. 2014, right? Mm-hmm. At UMass, where, which had all these former members. And I started interviewing and speaking with them. And these people were really involved in most of the major movements of the US left or new left during the late the 60s and 70s and into the 80s. So from the women's movement and the anti-war to supporting the Black Panthers and the environmental movement. So I'm really happy to have helped Bring the, the the writings of these people to a, a new audience.
0: Great, thank you. Um, so, in in terms of getting started on the, on this project, then um, did it start with uh, the archive, or or how how did it come about?
1: So. Um- Actually, and I I always feel like it's good politics to bring in this piece of it, especially for um, women academics. Um, When I got pregnant with my first baby, I needed a project that I didn't have to go to China to do my research for. So um, I started looking around and I thought I would write about Americans who went to China in the early 70s. Um, and what they thought of um, science as it was practiced in socialist China. Uh, and there was a book that had been on my shelf since forever, but I had never really known where it had come come from. Um, it was authored by these folks called Science for the People, and it was a report of their trip to China in 1973, published in 1974 called China, Science Walks on Two Legs. Very celebratory account of what they had seen about um, how science could work um, in a non-capitalist context, you know, in a revolutionary um, uh, political context. And uh, so I was interested in kind of following up on that. I um, saw, you know, what the list, the list of the delegates who had gone and I looked some of them up. I was able to make contact with some of them and start interviewing some of them and kind of wrote up the um, findings. Um, and in the process, I ended up um, kind of as Dan was saying, you know, once you get to know these folks, <laughs> uh, it's really exciting. Um, and so, you know, their interest. Um, was kind of what drew me to my um, interest in the history of science and socialist China as well. And even though, you know, I tend to have a more critical perspective, time has gone by and, you know, I maybe know more about Chinese history than they um, knew at the time. And so my lens is, is more critical. I shared with them um, an excitement and an enthusiasm um, for learning from um, Socialist China about, you know, we're just expanding um, our ideas about um, the way that science and society can interact. Um, So after talking to them for a while, um, one of them said, well, why don't you get us back together one last time, you know, a real little reunion of the um, Science for the People. We haven't done that and, you know, we should do it. We're all getting old and and this kind of thing. Um, And so I thought, oh, well, uh, UMass would be a good place to have this because it's, you know, um, accessible both to Boston and New York, and there's still a lot of science for the people people um, in those two um, areas. And um, I threw the invitation open and so many people said yes, that before we knew it, we were applying for um, National Science Foundation funding for it. And we Everybody seemed to want to co-sponsor it. Everybody was really excited about it. So we held this big conference um, in 2014, here it was called Science for the People. The 1970s and today, um, and about 60 people were um, ended up presenting. Um, about 200 people um, ended up attending, and um, we had panels on all sorts of different topics that where we would actually look. We'd include people um, who had been involved in Science for the People and could give us um, an analysis um, that resonated with with that. Um, movement, and then people who were working on similar issues today. Um, so that was the goal of that conference. And we have it all archived on this website, science 4 the peopleorg And we um, invited people also to share their Materials, which um, you know, if they're in paper format, um, have been archived at in um, at UMass Amherst in, in our um, uh, archives here, um, and some of those materials have also been scanned and put on the um, that same website, so that it's a resource there. Um, and so that's, you know, and then um, six of us um, from, you know, who attended that conference got together and um, decided that we wanted to put together a volume um, to collect some of these primary sources and make them available for a next generation. Do you want to add to yeah. that, Dan?
2: Yeah. And then, yes, yeah, six of us started on that project, but it ended up being, uh, and and all six of us ended up contributing, but the three of us became the main editors and that includes Alyssa Botello who wasn't able to do the interview, but we want to give her a shout out and some recognition, but she's a, a PhD MD student at Harvard. Yeah. And I was ended Sigrid. Yeah. So I was partially recruited by Sigrid to, to work on this project and I'm glad I did.
0: Great. So um, as we get started here with, with the book, we have um, some of that discussion in the introduction about this uh, 2014 conference. Um, in addition, we hear a little bit about the the group itself and um, and how it went about creating, uh, you know, basically participation in, in these kinds of science related uh, uh, active political activism. So I was wondering, in terms of the group itself, could you could you talk a little bit about how? Um, you know, they recruited in, in terms of like, uh, for instance, the bi-monthly magazine uh, and, and uh, things like this, where they, where they got people to be more aware of the issues. And, and uh, maybe you can even talk about the uh, disrupting of, of various conferences.
2: Yeah, sure. I can do that. Maybe it'd be helpful for your listeners if I just did answer that question with a brief overview of the organization's history. Or, Science for the People is originally founded in 1969 as CESPA, Science and Engineers for Political Action. Social and Political Action. Social and Political Action. And, Political yeah. Action. and that that's at, happens at the 1969, December 1969 meeting of the American Association for Arts. I'm sorry, the American
1: Physical Society.
2: <laughs> no, no, I, I was going to go back to the okay, American okay, Physical okay, Society okay, in okay, 67. I'm go sorry. Ahead. The American Association for the Advancement of Science, okay, is when it's in 1969, is when it's formed. But prior to that, two years earlier, 1967, at the American Physical Association Society, Charles Schwartz, who later becomes plays a major role in science for the people, he had passed a resolution within the APA, the American
1: Physical APS APS. I'm sorry, the
2: American Physical Society. To have a resolution, and you can read this in the book, the resolution that he passed to try to get the members to make a state. He well, he was just trying to make it so that you can have a political statement made by the group, but because he wanted the group to have a political statement against the U.S. war in Vietnam, and it became this big controversy where people in the American Physical Society said, "We're saying, oh, polit- science is politically neutral. We, you know, we, we shouldn't be engaging in politics, but but." Schwartz was saying, "Well, that's not true. It is political, and our you know to not take a stance has political ramifications because we're legit. By doing so, we're helping legitimize this brutal, awful war. So the the so called Schwartz Amendment was defeated through you know in the efforts to to um, pass that resolution, but that leads to this contributes among, with the escalation of the war and the Black Power movement and the growth of the women's movement." a radicalization of a certain sector of scientists, many of whom also participate in March 1969 in this big walkout at um, oh, MIT gosh. against the B- Nixon's ballistic missile program, anti-ballistic missile program. And um, those things culminate in the foundation of this group in 1969. And so one of the major activities of Science for the People, which is a term I'm gonna use because it's easier, rather than CESPA, is, is their annual disruptions of annual meetings of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, they, which they would refer to in short as AAA dollar sign instead of an S as their kind of way of joking, satirically um, associating this organization, which is the largest scientific body in the world then and now you know, with capitalism and capitalist imperatives. So they would, they would disrupt these meetings. These meetings were places where they could get together and organize and they would leaflet. They would have their literature tables, they'd have alternate symposium and workshops and panels and sessions, but they would also in some cases disrupt sessions that they thought per- particularly offensive. For example, at one point they presented Edward Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb, with the annual Doctor Strange Love Award, which is based on a 1964 Stanley Kubrick film about you know, the, arm, the arms race, and um, as a way of mocking him, at another point Hubert Humphrey, who is the vice president under Lyndon Johnson, who had escalated the war in Vietnam, he was at this point is during the Nixon administration. He's back to being a senator, but he tra- he speaks at the at the conference, and he's. Um, you know, signs for the people members take over the stage, and they refuse to leave until it's agreed that they can keep all their signs that say things like "Humphrey Pimp for U.S. Imperialism" surrounding him as he speaks, and then he's pelted with tomatoes and airplanes while he's speaking. So, the, so there was that kind of a thing. Um, but the there is also um, all kinds of other other programming and movement and activism that. Science for the people. Did you had things like using research research as activism? So, you, for example, the Madison Collective exposed the uh, Army Re- Army Math Research Center, which had been bombed by some leftist militants in um, 1970. A couple years later, they did research to expose how this center was 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 doing computer math research that was essential to the development of weapons systems in Vietnam that were being used to crush the you know, communist insurgency in South Vietnam. And um, so that's just one example of research. There was other protests and direct action against missile and weapons development firms. There was counter recruitment inspired partly by um, the war resistors and anti-draft movement where they were trying to encourage people who, who were Um, what we now call STEM workers or science workers working in weapons labs to find other employment. There was, and then um, later in the seventies, the the group gets more involved in the environmental movement and uh, many participate in the big anti-nuclear movement and anti-nuke protests in Seabrook, New Hampshire against the Seabrook um, nuclear power plant that's being developed there and the largest, nonviolent direct action in American history. And the group becomes a little bit also more decentralized after the late 70s. Part of it is there's an inter- there's some internal battles. If you really wanted to talk about that we could, but um but you have people involved in food justice and agriculture, um sustainability. You have people involved again in, in international solidarity work in the 70s it's with North Vietnam and Cuba later it's in the 80s when the Reagan administration starts its um, counter revolutionary wars in Central America it's solidarity with the Sandinistas in Nicaragua so uh, i just said a bunch and i'm sure i know i left some out would you would do you want to add to that well
1: i i definitely want to say i know surviving members of science for the people would like it clarified that um the officially it was not science for the people who grew those tomatoes right. Humphrey um so that um they they take credit for all sorts of things that they did but they are very clear that it, they weren't responsible for the tomatoes um also um this is not a, a, at all a correction but just to make sure um that people know that the um Uh, Army Math Research Center bombing, um, the bombing itself had nothing to do with Science for the People. You know, we know who did that, and it was not anybody affiliated with Science for the People. So, you know, when Science for the People does an expose of the Army Math Research Center in the wake of that bombing, which did, in fact, result in the death, um, accidental death of a postdoc who um, was in the building at the time, um, you know, that was a a bold thing to do and a controversial thing to do because, you know... um, nobody i don't think wanted you know wanted um to be saying that um you know that the that you know that death was incredibly regrettable and it was a you know a difficult thing for a leftist organization to come forward at that point um and not defend the bombing of the amrc that's not what they were doing in that um, exposé but rather to um say that you know in even as we mourn the death of that uh, researcher, we have to recognize that you know the um, you know that this uh, institution, the Army Math Research Center, was um, directly responsible. For research that uh, was applied um, in Vietnam um, and used to you know, kill far, far more people, um, and so they were not going to let that go. They weren't going to, you know, say that, you know, in the process of, you know, mourning the death of um, somebody who was killed because of this, um, you know, uh, leftist, you know, violent action, that we should then, um, you know, absolve the whole um, institution for, um, you know, what. In, in their minds really amounted to, um, criminal, uh, military activity, uh, in Vietnam. Um, I guess I would also just say, so, um, on the agriculture front, um, and this is one of the areas where the legacy of science for the people I think has been strongest. Um, and this especially came out of the, um, Ann Arbor chapter, um, where, um, uh, John Vandermeer then and now, um, he, he continues to be extremely um, influential um, along with um, Yvette Perfecto um, uh, in uh, sustaining a kind of um, a core of uh, uh leftist um, agricultural scientists. So those um, solidarity work that Dan mentioned um, with the Sandinistas, um, some of these folks were graduate students um, in the program um, at the the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, um, who went and um, spent years um, in some cases um, doing solidarity work um, in agricultural science, um, you know, ecological forms um, of agriculture, um, with the, um, Sandinistas, um, they also did work domestically. So, um, uh, consistent with their, um, Marxist, uh, perspective and their, um, you know, uh, labor focus, they, um, uh, they um, formed alliances with labor organizations, including the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, um, which uh, organized workers and um, farm workers in the Midwest. And so they would work with them on issues related to pesticides um, and also um, with the mechanization, you know, um, confronting the um You know, the consequences of agricultural mechanization um, for uh, farm laborers, um, you know, it's basically a labor issue um, because it can displace um, workers.
2: Wait, and a couple other things, if you don't mind, Chad, because this group did so much. Another thing is you mentioned the newspaper and they started publishing the newspaper in 1970. There's over 100 issues by the time it folded in 1989, but... In some ways, the group, like I said, becomes a lot more fluid and decentralized after beginning in the early 80s. And it, um, as an organization, it's more the newspaper and then kind of a constellation of different people inspired by science to the people or former members working on different campaigns locally. But the, one of the things that's important about this newspaper is, is that it kept these ideas alive and became sort of a, a node of, of networking and organizing. But... It, it also helped promote this ongoing message, which was at the core of what Science for the People was about, which is their 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 assertion that science is never politically neutral. And they, you know, whether they were doing direct action or whether they were trying to do solidarity work or help help the Black Panthers set up um, medical clinics or computer um, software. They're doing it with this idea that science is always political and we want a science that works for the advancement of human freedom and dignity and justice rather and for environmental sustainability rather than for militarism and capitalist exploitation. So, yeah.
1: In a nutshell, that's what
2: the organization was
1: about. There's a lot to say. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and also challenging um, genetic engineering, challenging scientific racism and biological determinism, scientific justifications for gender inequality and homo- homophobia or anti-gay, anti-queer ideas and policies. And um, also played a, sci- members played a critical role in probably one of the most important movements of the 1980s, which is a successful movement to stop the Reagan administration's um, strategic Defense Initiative, also known as the Star Wars missile defense program, which was at the time the largest military project in American history.
0: Yeah. So my question was was more about the uh, the the, the pro- like promotion and recruitment uh, elements of the group, but as it's, it's, this was a great overview of everything that they'd done, and so obviously these these kinds of actions were uh, the ways in which they. Um, uh, you know, n- uh, recruited throughout there and promoted throughout their uh, uh, existence. So um, on that, s- sorry.
1: You know, when you're so looking at like what, you know, brought people in, you know, so that they're organizing on college campuses, Um, for the most part. And so there are a lot of people who, um, you know, come to it because they are, you know, members of these campus um, communities and they um, become, you know, involved through that kind of um, networking. Um, But then more broadly, the magazine acts as a, you know, a very important point of entry. And I think a lot of people, you know, as we were doing researching the book, one question that we were asked periodically is, you know, how are you defining a member of science for the people? And I think the very fact that that um, is a difficult question to answer speaks to some of the organizational structure, because frankly, you know, people when we were having the conference would identify themselves as former members uh, of the organization who, you know, really had just been subscribers to the magazine, but for them, you know, that was, you know, they felt connected to this movement because they were supporting the magazine through their subscription because they were reading it, you know, potentially they were also contributing to it. Um, but that, you know, you know that um, involvement in and of itself uh, was an important way for people to feel connected to this movement, and people who now, to this day, um, feel connected to the movement. Such that when the um, when the call went out for the conference, they signed up, um, and now that the um, organization has actually been um, revitalized, um, they uh, there are you know people who you know whose connection to the organization um, was via the magazine who are now moved to um, you know to participate.
2: And they also did a lot of recruiting, you know, through the AAAS meetings and conferences, and with their counter counter recruitment mm-hmm. efforts, and in anti war movement networks and other leftist networks. Mm-hmm.
0: And in in terms of what's unique about this movement, um, could you could you speak a, a little bit more about their uh, interventions in terms of um, their their Intellectual sort of point of view here when it comes to uh, an ideological critique of science. So in the in the first chapter, we have a number of documents, you know, uh, ranging from uh, 19, the nineteen seventies uh, to most recently, in twenty fourteen. So um, could could you speak a little bit about maybe the the consistency of their critique and um, you know, some of the different elements of their critique of mainstream science?
1: Sure. Um, So one of the things and one of the reasons that, you know, this organization spoke um, so compellingly to me is that, you know, so, you know, I'm a a historian who studies, um, science and politics. Um, and so I, you know, I'm kind of bridging, um, history and science. These, um, were folks, some of them, some of the people involved in science for the people were, were historians or social scientists, and many of them, most of them were, um, natural scientists, some of whom had an extraordinary, um, uh, capacity to understand, um, history and politics. And that is, you know, increasingly rare. I would say it was rare even, um, in the 1970s. Um, but, um, these were folks, um, Dick Levins, Dick Lewinton, um, Stephen Jay Gould, um, Rita Arditi, many others, um, Jonathan Beck, I mean, I could go on and on, but um, Ruth Hubbard, um, another um, great example. These are people who um, were steeped In um, the in um, political analysis, they um, and especially in um, the political analysis that comes um, out of the Marxist tradition. So these were people who had read their um, Marxist history and um, um, political philosophy and were able to apply it very. thoughtfully, in a very um, deep and rich manner to the um, politics of science in their own day. Um, they drew in particular from the writings of um, British Marxist scientists from the um, interwar period, um, people like Bernal and Haldane and Hogben, um, people, Needham, um, people who had um, themselves identified as Marxists who drew on um, understandings of political economy to analyze, you know, where science and politics were going at that point. Um, and the 1970s was quite different. Um, yeah, it, it was a, a different um, um, historical moment, to be sure. Um, so the um, analysis was going to um, change the um, uh, because of those differences. So for example, the, um, especially people like J.D. Bernal, um, in the um, early 20th century, Eng- in early 20th century England, you know, was um, very enamored of the way that the Soviet Union had organized science and was really advocating for the development of kind of a big state sponsored science system of the kind that the Soviet Union had um, accomplished and thought that that was really the kind of um, the big solution um, to the problem. Um, the folks in the 1970s, you know, by that point, um, the U.S. had actually produced big science um, here in the U.S. Um, and, you know, state supported science was a was a thing, um, but it was in a capitalist uh, context. And so the emphasis shifted, you know, um, somewhat and it was no longer about how to produce a, um, a big um, state um, science had you know, produced big state science, but rather um, the a critique of the um, state corporate um, scientific axis and to um, you know question how um, big science had um, come to serve um, capitalism and imperialism um, rather than serve the public interest as those early 20th century Marxist um, scientists had envisioned. Um, another kind of major um, important difference was the way in which race and gender came to, um, you know, be recognized as um, very important um, um, kinds of, uh, of oppression and um, axes um, for analysis. Um, so they were not necessarily always successful in, um, you know, Figuring out how to um, prioritize race and gender uh, to the same extent um, as um, you know as, as looking at um, class oppression under capitalism, and there we talk somewhat in the book, um, especially about the feminists. Um, in the science for the people movement who um, have uh, e- expressed considerable frustration about um, the limits to which they were able to pursue uh, a feminist critique of science within science for the people so there were um, there were gaps um, but it, these were definitely um, subjects that were on the table, and that many of the members of Science for the People were um, explicitly and passionately uh, committed to. Um, But I think, you know, Dan, you know, the the kind of the overarching point, um, Dan um, already expressed and put it really well that this is really about the um, impossibility of seeing science as in any way politically neutral. And they come back to this over and over again, and no matter what subject they're looking at, whether, you know, it's agriculture, whether it's, um, you know, racism in, uh, bio- in biology, um, whether it's, um, you know, computers, you name it, when it comes down to it, the the crux of the analysis, it's about power, it's about mm-hmm. seeing how, you um, you know, that without an analysis of power, you don't understand why science isn't working. Um, And so if it's about technology, it's not that technology is good or bad. It's that technology serves um, the people in power. And that if you want technology to serve the people, you've got to uh, pursue a revolutionary politics that puts the people in power. And you can't expect um, technology to um, serve the people unless you have a revolutionary politics. And that will be true with agriculture. If you're wondering why, Chemical corporations, uh, you know, or why are our, our, uh, why we have so much we use so many pesticides? It's not simply you know a matter of people trying to kill the bugs in their garden, right? You have to understand the political power uh, and the economic power of chemical corporations and how that um, uh, influenced the. Um, direction that research into insects um, took in this country. Um, so it's always comes back to power. And that's really um, at the, you know, at the root of it. And that's, you know, what they got from their Marxist predecessors. Um, and, you know, what continues to inform the movement today.
2: I add something to that. I um just a couple things that I think why science for the people is important or insp- cool or inspiring, even though as historians and you know just critical thinkers, we can't just romanticize them and not recognize their limits. But I still do find a lot of inspiration from them. And one of them is the fact that you know we there's a, the the myth of science as politically neutral is so so heavy that you know just the idea of science as political activists and radical political activists. It's just interesting, and um, and and I think for those you, most of your listeners are probably, if not scientists or STEM workers then people who are in the field of STS, but um, I think it's encouraging for them if, or listeners to know if you're a scientist or a STEM worker, you can be politically active, and you can be politically active in your own field and in your own place of work, and I think that's where often we. Can be most effective in political activism, and it's part, It's um, you know, and it's, it's actually partly why Sigrid is more involved in the current science for the people than I am. I've helped write this book, and I'm happy to help guide with historical insights. But um, because it's not my main area of focus, I, I, my political activity I've focused a li- in, in a little bit in other places. But I think keeping that in mind, that wherever we're at, wherever our job is, wherever our field of work, or whatever our community is. There's a way to be politically active and to critique power and to challenge power with uh, in collect in collective efforts with others and in solidarity with people in other locations. So that's another thing I would take away from this. Definitely,
0: yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to their their critique of of science, they also um, oftentimes they develop alternatives, right? Um, so whether that's um, you know Stephen Rose talking about um, you know a, a more uh, relational approach to, to science and especially um, biology to um, you know other other alternatives to various kinds of uh, research right so um, including the the uh, ideas around nuclear conversion uh Plants and uh, and the people's um, math research center. So could could you talk a little bit about um, some of these alternative thoughts and and actions that they had? So um, because they they definitely have some some articles in here where it is primarily uh, a critique of mainstream science for uh, its 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 uh, use in, in capitalism. Um, but uh, they also sometimes develop these and organize it around these these alternatives. So could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, um, I'll, I'll start out with that. You know, I want to um, – this is probably as good a time as any to emphasize the inspiration that uh, Science for the People itself um, took from other movements that were happening at the same time. Um, and so, you know, for example, the, um, health clinics, the people's health clinics that the Black Panthers, um, had set up were, um, a major, uh, inspiration, um, and, uh, you know, a, um, movement that Science for the People very much, uh, wanted to, um, you know, uh, support and also to, um, draw, you know, to recognize as a, um, you know, as a kind of leading force, you know, as a, a way of saying, okay, so the system is broken. What do we do? Of course, we advocate to, you know, um, transform the system, but in the meantime, people are hurting, people are dying. We also need to be creating the alternatives on the ground. And for the Black Panthers, that was about creating, um, community, Um, free community clinics where people um, of color, in particular, black people in um, communities that were often far away from hospitals, and in any case, if they could get to the hospitals, they were not confident that they could get um, appropriate care from people who didn't, um, you know, understand the needs of their community or who were, you know, blatantly racist. And so they formed, you know, um, an alternative network of um, clinics across the country Um, So that, you know, that's an example of the kind of um, inspiration they took in, you know, the closest thing that you could call, you know, to um, a manifesto of science for the people. And this is actually document 1.1 in the book, um, a document called tour to science for the people. The version that we have here um, was published in 1972, although the origins, the kind of first draft of the document was more like 1970. Um, But in that, um, they do this thing—the very thing that you're you're saying, Chad. You know, they're not just—they just don't just offer the critique, but they end it with, "Okay, well, what is what would a science for the people look like? What should we do?" Um, and they have a list here of six different ways in which um, scientists can actually do their work differently. One would be technical assistance to movement organizations and oppressed people. So this included um, direct assistance, for example, to the Black Panthers and the Young Lords um, and the, you know, Farm Labor Organizing Committee. Um, Number two, foreign technical help to revolutionary movements. So that included their work um, uh, helping um, uh, revolutionary movements in Vietnam, in Nicaragua, um, uh, Cuba, Uh, Number three, people's research. In this, this they say, quote, unlike the technical assistance projects described above, uh, these are areas in which scientists should take the initiative and begin developing projects that will aid struggles that are just beginning to develop. For example, workers in the medical and social sciences and in education could help design a program for client-controlled daycare centers. Uh, which would both free women from the necessity of continual childcare and provide a thoroughly socialist educational experience for the children. Uh, number four, exposes and power structure research. That's you know what Dan was talking about before with the Army Math Research Center. They also did a very influential expose on um, the Jason Group, the secretive group of scientists um, that the government hired to um, advise them on military matters. Uh, number five is ideological struggle. Um, and so this is basically the cr- creation of um, the, the magazine would count here. Also, um, they made numerous um, uh, curricula, um, uh, school curricula. We have uh, one example in the book of um, from the what they call the feed, need, greed um, uh, school curriculum on um, agriculture and what we would today call food justice Um Number six is the demystification of science and technology. Um, so basically, being this is you know what today some people might call science communication, right? So actually, um, trying to explain um, uh, scientific. Uh, ideas and, uh, you know, the content of science to the general public. Um, However, unlike a lot of the folks who are involved in science communication today, they saw this explicitly in um, political terms. And that's why they use this term demystification, which is a term that Marxists commonly um, use uh, to indicate that it's not just about explaining concepts, but actively subverting the way in which the power structure um, keeps people ignorant um, of, the, uh, of the knowledge that they need in order to liberate themselves.
2: Yeah, and that's one, of, you mentioned, Chad, instead of Sigrid, the, the alternative um, Army Math Research Center they called for a people's math research center They they wrote this large book, 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 you know, that um, about three quarters of the book was analyzing, exposing, critiquing the research used by the AMRC. But then at the end, the, and, some, um, and we have some of it exerted in, in our book, they outlined this people's math research center and how it would be funded. And a big part of it was saying like, we need to demystify this science and make, make this center available to all these different movement organizations and community organizations who could use it for their own projects. And they even went so far as to talk about how, how they would try to get the funding for that. Um, Similarly, there was also this movement in the eighties that some science for the people were members of that was seeking to convert the U S nuclear laboratories in Livermore, California, um, and Los Alamos, Mexico, into some other sort of research center that would be have similar purposes, being used for the
0: people and research, or being used for the development of human welfare rather than militarism. You've already touched up on this, but um, a number of these chapters also discuss these um, a- attempts to um, integrate not just uh, scientists, um, uh, you know, re- regarding these kind of politics, but also getting non-experts involved. Uh, and, you know, whether it's whether it's talking about a kind of participatory technology or um, research, as you mentioned. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about some of those cases. Well, I know one was
2: there was a, a technical assistance program in that the Boston Science for the People chapter was involved with, and they were trying to set up... Um, radio and communication and, and other um, technology support for the Black Panthers and other local organizations. And they had an envis- a vision of expanding it further. Some of the limitations were that this was a small collective of people mostly working in volunteering in their free time. And sometimes they had challenges. Um, you know, their, their, their goal was to teach other people how to do this technology themselves, but often it ended up being a free repair or technology advice service. And they weren't able to move beyond that with their limited resources. But that's one example. Also in Nicaragua, uh, well um, there was several different teams of people, including from the new world agricultural group in Ann Arbor, who went down and worked with researchers and farmers in Nicaragua to develop sustainable agricultural practices and uh, develop agricultural education with a focus also on women, young women in Nicaragua providing them or helping get them gain access to that education. So those are some of the examples, but I think that there was limits to how much of that they were able to do.
1: I think, you know, here, um, two things. One is, you know, the, um, This is, you know, uh, connects with my my own original interest in science for the people is how much inspiration they took from uh, what they saw in China when their delegation went to China. So in China, um, during this period, you have this phenomenon known as mass science, and it's really all about um, overcoming this um, division between expert professional knowledge and the kind of knowledge that working people have through their experience in um, whether it's factory work or farm work or whatever their um, experience through their own labor is. Um, And so they called this, you know, mass science, the idea that um, people who are not um, professional scientists had something real to contribute to scientific knowledge. The temptation today, I think, you know, would be to connect this with this um, thing we've come to call citizen science, right, where there's um, an interest in um, encouraging, um, lay people to get involved in, um, in participating in scientific research in different ways. Um, but I think there are a couple of, um, distinctions that are really important to keep in mind. Um, one is, again, the political. Um, so, um, you know, today, um, this thing, this phenomenon we call um, citizen science can be um, and has been mobilized, you know, as much to support um, science that is, in fact, profiting um, companies um, as it is necessarily to um, support people's um people's needs, um, and where it has served people's needs the best. Um, I would argue it's where, um, scientists are collaborating with grassroots organizations. So it's not just about, um, kind of mobilizing, you know, people, um, kind of, you know, uh, just out there, you know, loosely, um, it's about, uh, uh creating, uh, Active solidarity with organizations on the ground, um, and a really good um, example of this would be the work of um, the Pesticide Action Network, which um, also has a um, you know has its origins in a connection with Science for the People. I don't think it would be fair to say it actually emerged from Science for the People, but there's a um, there's overlaps in the people, and there was um, there was some inspiration there. Margaret Reeves um, is um, somebody who was. Um, active in the original science for the people who now works for pesticide action network and is also involved in the revitalization of um, science for the people today. Um, She was at the um, first national convention of the um, new science for the people. that was just held in February actually at Ann Arbor. Um, And she emphasized that um, in their work um, they make it a rule that they um, you know, they provide uh, scientific uh, expertise and, um, you know, support um, to uh, people who are, um, you know, concerned about pesticides in their communities. But, you know, the rule is that, you know, they've got to work with an organization, an organization that's working um, at the grassroots to do this and that has a, a policy goal in mind. So this, you know, um, this idea of kind of participation, of getting lay people involved, is really important. And it definitely was um, a very, you know, important part of the vision of um, science for the people. It's also kind of science by the people, but not in a um, kind of depoliticized sense that citizen science um, often is. Not always, but often is. It's, it is about. Uh, solidarity with the organizations that are working in communities and understand what those communities need um, and have legitimacy within those communities.
0: That's a very important distinction. Um, But yeah, so thinking about some of these um, actions um, in the, in the past that have led to maybe some of these folks um, starting other organizations. um, I was wondering if you could, Talk a little bit about, um, you know, the 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 legacy of science for the people, and uh, you know, a little bit more in depth about how it's uh, it's influencing this you know revitalization.
1: Yeah, so um, science for the people, you know, the people of science for the people didn't go away. Um, you know, the organization itself. Um, folded in part because of um, tax problems, very mundane reasons, but also, you know, the some of the energy had kind of moved in other directions. But um, the people involved went on um, to do continued really to do science for the I mean, to, to do literally science for the people, you know, so. Um uh, whether that means, you know, working among um, Maasai people in Africa to um, develop appropriate water um, and energy. Um, technologies, which Bob Lange um, of the um, original Science for the People does, um, or working in occupational health and safety, that's a major area where um, people originally in Science for the People have continued to do very important work. Um, pesticides, I already mentioned, um, and other kinds of environmental um, environmental work. Um, uh, medical, like medical equity, um, health equity, um, these areas. Um, so many different areas that, um, you know, people continued um, to do this, uh, to um, you know, put their energy into um, the current um, revitalization of science for the people. Um, again, they just had, the, we just had the first um, of the revitalized uh, the first, National Convention of the Revitalized Science for the People in February, the organizing around that has been going on for several years, but got a real boost after Um, Trump's election and with the first um, March for Science in 2017, um, mainly because I think a lot of people felt that on one hand, we absolutely want to march for science. On the other hand, we don't want to march for some kind of science in the abstract, right? Like we're marching for science for the people, not science for the Pentagon, right? Mm -hmm. And we wanted to make that clear and make that point clear. The um, second March for Science just happened. Uh, last weekend, and um, Science for the People was out in force um, in all um, in many of the, um, the major um, centers. Uh, there are now chapters in um, quite a few um, places, including um, New York, Atlanta, Ann Arbor. Um, Here in Western Mass, Um, there are a number of other other chapters, and we have working groups on militarism, on nuclear disarmament, on sociobiology, on labor uh, organizing, on Puerto Rico, um, and on education, um, on climate change, on reproductive justice. Um, and a number of other um, number of other issues, and several of the chapters, including our own here in Western Mass, are very committed to forging solidarities with grassroots organizations um, to address the issues that they are facing um, in the communities that they are organizing, and figure out ways that we can put scientists um, in the service of the um, the you know uh, issues that they've identified as most important to their communities.
0: Well, we're just about out of time here. Um, I before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you both um, what uh, what projects are you are you working on now? I mean, Sigrid, you just mentioned some of the um, some some of the activities around science for the people right now. But um, in terms of your uh, current scholarly work, um, could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I, I admit that I'm spending a lot of time on science for the people, and I am. Um, I am uh, thinking about it as a hybrid um, of uh, scholarly and an um, um, and activist work. Um, I'm also um, working to launch a book series with UMass Press um, called um, Activist Science and Technology Studies. Um, so that is just in formation now, um, but we are um, looking for um, book manuscripts that will, um, you know, help um, science and technology studies uh, reclaim these um, radical activist roots and um, kind of build on the um, important um, legacies of that um that uh, important cross-fertilization between science for the people and um, science and technology studies. On the China side, um, I'm continuing to work on agriculture. My recent um, work was on My book was called Red Revolution, Green Revolution on um, scientific farming in socialist era China. And now I'm working on um, agricultural terraces um, and the um, kind of significance of terracing um, campaigns in the Mao era um, and the way in which they formed an important foundation for the conservation um, and heritage, agricultural heritage work in um, more recent times
2: around agricultural terracing China and <clears throat> my research is not on terraces but on terrorism <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm writing a book um, I'm finishing up a manuscript for a book it's called Nixon's war on terrorism um, the FBI leftist guerrillas and the origins of counterterrorism and it's on it's with the post um, the power politics and society series at the University of North Carolina press and it's looking at how you um, how, um, violence that came out of the movements of the U S left in the, in, in the late sixties and early seventies groups, like the weather underground and the black liberation army, and like the bombers at the, in Madison at the army math research center, how that's, um, looking partly how, where that violence came from in terms of being motivated as a response to state violence, but then how that violence in turn influences the FBI, the federal Bureau of, of investigation and its surveillance and counterintelligence practices and um, politics more broadly during the Nixon administration and looking at how this conflict between the FBI and the Nixon administration and this leftist guerrillas contributes to the emergence of counterterrorism. So, and, and efforts to revive also in in efforts to revive a cold, uh, earlier cold war surveillance state in the name of fighting terrorism so it has ramifications also for our post 9/11 era where um we have we do have a revitalization of a surveillance state and counterterrorism that's even being directed at movements like black lives matter and uh, the anti pipeline um indigenous protesters in the dakotas and et cetera.
0: Well, those sound like very interesting projects. Um, I hope that when your book comes out that you consider, you know, um, joining one of our uh, New Books Network podcasts for an interview. Um, to, to wrap up for today, um, I wanted to thank our guests, Sigrid and Dan. Um, and their, their book, again, is Science for the People, Documents from America's Movement of Radical Scientists. Edited by Sigurd Schmalzer, Daniel Chard, and Alyssa Botello, with contributions from Thomas Connor, Colin Garvey, and Ben Allen, uh, along with really uh, well over a dozen contributions from uh, various Science for the People members. Uh, thank you again. I really enjoy it. Take care.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks.